0: Thanks, Pastor Ben. Please grab a seat, folks. Wonderful. I'll do it myself. No, no, just <laughs> All right. Isn't it good to gather around the Word? As Pastor Ben just said, we're in the middle of a series at the moment, or we've actually just started this is message two, uh, called Jesus More Than You Know. And, you know, every one of us, through our experience, through our journey, through our understanding, through our perception, we can create a sense of reality around certain facts, around certain people, around certain theologies, around different belief systems. There's a thing called cognitive bias. Now, cognitive bias is where I allow certain things that influence have influenced my journey the journey that I've been on uh, maybe the experiences that I've had to color the way that I see something that comes up before me now and I, I can see something in a very different way than than uh, somebody else here today we could both look at the same uh, stimulus or the same situation or the same circumstance and see it very very differently because of cognitive bias and you know it's similar when we look at Jesus Now, when we look at Jesus, sometimes, many of us have had different journeys. Some of us have been in the church for many years. Some have been in the church for maybe a few weeks. Some have studied scripture. Some maybe haven't. We've read the Bible ourselves. We've done all sorts of things. And and we come up with these uh, preconceived notions. We come up with these perceptions. We come up with views. Maybe we cherry-pick a little bit. So the the term cherry-picking is when we, we, we take a piece that we like, but maybe we ignore the piece that we don't like. And we've all got favourite scriptures, we've all got favourite stories about Jesus, maybe favourite teachings of Jesus, and probably a few of Jesus' stories and teachings that are a bit harder to reconcile. And so it's very easy that we can actually start developing this view of Jesus and this view of Jesus' teaching that is not actually correct, that is not actually the whole story or the whole picture. And even worse, we can then start presenting that, as though it's reality, inadvertently. You know, that we we come up with something that is a perception on our part, but it's not necessarily the whole story. And, you know, in an act of incredible mercy, God gave us four different Gospels, uh, each telling the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his actions, his death, his resurrection. And those four Gospels have very different focuses, very different emphases. They, they talk about different aspects of Jesus' life. They talk about different teachings. And they have a very different focus. They were each written by a particular author at a particular time for a particular purpose. Now, sometimes, uh, over the years, people have looked at the four Gospels and and. If, if you read the Gospels trying to, to try and discover some sort of fault and, and, you, and people have put them together and said, well, these, these four stories aren't exactly the same, so therefore one must be wrong and one must be right. But when you understand that the four stories were actually given with very different purposes, very different reasons. And as John says at the end of his Gospel, that if all the things that Jesus said and did could be written down, not even the whole world could fill the the, the books that would be written about him. So there was so much about Jesus' life that probably is not recorded in the four Gospels. But there are certain aspects of Jesus that are recorded in all four of those Gospels to give us certain perspectives and understandings. And together, we get a full picture of who Jesus was. The danger of not really looking at this whole picture, is that we can eventually create a Jesus of our own making. We can create a Jesus in our own image if we don't look at who Jesus really was and what he really did and what he really said and what his emphases and focuses really were and his teachings. Because sometimes it's easier for me to maybe want to drive a point home to somebody and so I'll use scripture or I'll use the teachings of Jesus to try and ram home the point that I want to make. And and that's in many ways, a misuse of scripture, but it also can create misunderstandings or misapprehensions in other people about who Jesus really was. Now, our world over the last two generations in particular has changed significantly. Now, I'm still south of 50, just, and, uh, and you know, when I grew up, so just, we're, we're talking, yeah. So when I grew up, when I was young, um, most of my classmates, most of the people I knew went to Sunday school. They went to church to some degree, whether they're Christian families or not. You know, the, the parents would oh, we will, we'll send our kids to Sunday school so that they can get some, some foundations or, you know, they can get some sort of good teaching or good moral behaviour or whatever the reasons. It was quite common for most people to have some level of uh, understanding of what the Bible said, what the Bible taught. Now, often it was a misunderstanding. That's a whole different issue. But there was, there was a basic understanding of the tenets of Christianity. Um, now, in the last two generations, our world has changed. Um, personally, I don't like the concept that people talk about of us being a Christian country. We're not a Christian country, never have been. Um, our, our foundation wasn't Christian. Um, it, that, that's, an, again, another conversation for another day. Um, and so sometimes we get this misunderstanding of, oh, if we just go back to the tenets of the Bible, then the country would be good. And, and we want to, you know, we, we can present to a post Christian world, to a secular world. Uh, as though we just want to have a, a government that will bring in moral behaviour codes and everything will be fine. And, and we wonder why the world sees us as irrelevant. You know, we are in a post-Christian culture. It's, it's no longer good enough for us, or it's no longer relevant, should I say, for us out there in the world to say, well, well, well this is truth because the Bible tells me so. Now, we believe the Bible. We believe it to be God's word. The world doesn't. Many people out there in the world believe the Bible to be full of hate speech and all sorts of things. There's all sorts of, of, of wrong views of, of the Bible and of Christianity. And, and sometimes we can inadvertently become part of that because of what we present about Jesus. And so in this series, we're talking about who Jesus really was. And look, I, I find that even for those of us that have been in church for much of our lives, when we see the real Jesus, when we see the real picture... I suggest many of us might be surprised. We might be surprised at some of the things he did and didn't do, some of the things he taught and some of the things he didn't teach. You know, when I was growing up, um, a lot of people used to say, oh, well, it says in the Bible, God helps those that help themselves. <laughs> Has anyone ever heard that? It's actually not in the Bible. Um, and, and, you know, there's all sorts of misconceptions about what Jesus did and didn't say or teach or, or uh, present in his actions um, and, and so this series, I think, is really necessary for us to really look at Jesus through all four of the Gospels and, and what all four of the Gospel writers wanted us to understand with Jesus. And so in this first part of the, of the series, we're looking at Jesus through Matthew. And uh, if you were here two weeks ago, Pastor Ben um, started with, a, with, with an incredible message uh, that, that is from a part of Matthew that many of us, if you're like me, have probably just skipped over most of your lives, um, and that's the genealogy you know, where so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, all, all the way down. Chapter 1, uh, I, I used to, when I was younger and I did like, read the Bible through a year, I didn't mind getting to that point because that was like a real quick, let's start at verse 19. You know, I've done most of chapter 1 in five seconds because I just... Um, but if we do that, we actually miss so much depth and so much, um, just, just such truth and, and so if you weren't here the week before last and didn't hear that message, can I really encourage you to, to grab hold of it? It's on our website. Um, it really gives a, an incredible understanding of exactly who Jesus was portrayed to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And through the genealogy, we had the, in the 14 generations. He was the, the son of Abraham, 14 generations down to David, 14 generations down to the exile and then to Jesus. And and so e- even in the, the Hebrew Gematria, the, the number 14 represented David, so he's been declared as the son of David over and over again. David was deemed to be the king of Israel, and so the son of David would be the king, the Messiah. And, and so all through and, and through the, uh, the genealogy, we had not only did we have a few um, unusual names and a few unusual people that were included in that, but there were four women that were included, at least three of which, if not all four, were Gentiles. They weren't even Jews. And at least three of which were involved in scandalous situations, uh, with different scandals. And and so you can hear all about that in Pastor Ben's message. But But we then get to the, the last name in that genealogy being Mary, the fifth, woman who, the fifth woman who is introduced. And again, she's introduced in a moment of scandal. That moment of scandal is within a culture where adultery is punishable by death, she falls pregnant without being married and, and supposedly without ever being with a man. And, and so this, this is the latest scandal in, in so many scandals throughout the genealogy and it's into this situation that Jesus is born. And all the other Gospels, at this point of the story, they go on to tell the story of Jesus' birth and Bethlehem and the shepherds and the angels, all all that stuff. Matthew doesn't do that. At this point, Matthew talks very briefly about Jesus' conception and and about the the challenges Joseph faced, but then he actually takes us on a bit of a segue. And and it's a really fascinating segue at first, but as we start to understand the reasons that he did it, it actually becomes quite profound. So let's start reading from Matthew chapter 2. So we've just seen the genealogy of Jesus and that Mary's fallen pregnant and Joseph decides, you know, he's going to divorce her quietly. The angel comes and says, no, no, this is is God, this is the Messiah. And then chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, so he just skips right over the birth. After the birth, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The Magi, the three wise men, the three kings of Orient are... You know the song? When when, when you think of the wise men, what, what do you think of? Do you think of, you know, a stable the baby and sort of laying in the manger Mary and Joseph with halos of course around the head maybe an ox and a couple of donkeys and a few sheep and shepherds and you know maybe a little seven-year-old Cal Harris playing a drum you know and all all these pictures that we we see in, in the nativity scene and then the three wise men come in on their camels Usually three older guys, you know, singing in harmony, we three kings of Orient are, and, and the, they come down and they, they kneel down and give these three gifts to Jesus. Is that sort of the picture that many of us have? Uh, because it's culturally been put on us, I guess. Um, a few interesting things. So first of all, Matthew's the only Gospel that talks about the Magi, and Matthew's the only Gospel that brings this point out. The other Gospels focus on the other aspects of the birth story, but not the Magi. They weren't kings. Uh, we, uh, um, despite what Catholic tradition or Orthodox tradition says, we don't necessarily know their names, and there probably wasn't three of them. Uh, but the, this group of people from the East, known as the Magi, came into the picture. And that's probably about the only part of the story that is anything really like the nativity scene that you're probably picturing, um, that's again another conversation for another day. But if if you want to go to to one of the verses, there it says when they approached the house, not the stable. But anyway, so the, the the magi came into this picture where Jesus was there, and and they knelt down and they worshipped, and they'd been to see Herod, uh, to see Herod, sorry, and uh, and and Herod had had tried to orchestrate events. <laughs> um, Herod had tried to orchestrate events in a certain way, but God then warned the magi, and they went another way home. But let's just spend a couple of minutes focusing on who were the Magi. Have you ever wondered? You've probably heard different messages and all sorts of different things about them. Let's just look very briefly historically at at who the Magi were, because they were a particular group of people, and they first come into the story back in the book of Daniel. So many hundreds of years, probably 700 or so years prior to Jesus. Uh, And so we'll just share briefly from Daniel chapter 2. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed. So this is in the, the uh, nation of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And they had just actually taken the people of Israel into captivity. So when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus, you had the genealogy from Abraham to David, from David to the exile. So what we're reading now is at that point of the exile. He went exiled to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had a dream. His mind was troubled, and he, troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the magi, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. he won't go through the whole story, but the magi came to him and said, well, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And he said, no, 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 if you're really um, magicians, if you're really sorcerers, you tell me the dream and what it means. And none of them could do it, of course, and he was about to put them all to death when Daniel came forward and told him the dream. See, Daniel was actually numbered among one of the Magi. So he was one of the advisors to the king in Babylon. There was a group of people in Babylon, and they were known as magicians, sorcerers, astrologers. They, they were taught all of the different arts, all of the different uh, what's referred to as heavenly sciences, and, and they were advisors to the king. In in a similar way in most nations, so for example back in Exodus when Moses comes before Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a similar class of priestly types who also can do all sorts of signs and wonders. When Moses is performing miracles, they can do the same to a point. Um, The Canaanites had their own priests and priestesses and there was always a priestly class in in every nation. Actually, um, a few days ago, Julia was watching uh, um, a cartoon, El Dorado. Even they had like the same sort of priests that were that were performing all sorts of signs and wonders, um, and and most nations around the time had this class. Even the Jews had this class of priests known as the Levites, descendants of Aaron, and and they th- their role was a priestly role. And so the Magi weren't exactly the same as the Levites, but they were, I guess, a similar type of concept in other nations, in what, what we would call pagan nations of the time. And so when the Babylonian Empire was overthrown in 539 BC, they were taken over by a new empire called the Medes and the Persians. And You may recall in, in uh, the book of Ezra, um, starting at chapter 1, the, uh, where they talk about King Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And and he basically proclaims that that God has told him to to build a temple for him in Jerusalem and so he was going to send all the people back from exile. They'd been in exile for 70 years um, and so he sent them back to Jerusalem to build a temple to God and to worship their God. And so this was the start of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So the Magi themselves, the name Magi, was actually a Persian word. So they started to be known as Magi in this kingdom, and they were a a priestly class from the Medes. came from the Persian word Magav, um, and they were a hereditary tribe, like the Levites. So it was heredity down through the the generations. The, The Magav were known as Magi, and they were taught certain things, certain um, ways, certain uh, sciences and, and you know, all sorts of astrological things and various things. Um, the other interpretation was the word uh, uh, magistanis, which we get the word magistrate from. So they were a ju- judicial class as well. So they were like the advisors around a king. Um, so if we think today like you know, a magistrate or, or somebody who would advise maybe one of our leaders, um, so that, that's the, the concept of the magi. Now they were into astrology, they were into Zoroastrianism, other pagan worship practices, all sorts of different things, things that, that, that we would consider not right, things that the Jews would consider not right. They had different um, systems of worship of different gods, uh, all of which right throughout the Old Testament, God had said, "This is not on, this is not for my people. you are not called to do these things. So um, just just a disclaimer for the story today, you know because I'm, I'm going to talk about a few things in a moment. God's not actually saying that things like astrology are good, but it's amazing at the same time what eventuates in this story. So just, just disclaimer for those watching at home. Um, don't try this at home. Uh, this, is, um, this is more an example of how God used certain people rather than God saying, therefore, this is the way you should go. So just to be clear. Um, okay, so they weren't kings as such, but they had such authority and such power that the historian Herodotus in five uh, the 5th century BC, um, he actually said that no king could be declared, or no person could be declared a king in the Persian Empire unless they were trained in the ways of the Magi and unless the Magi crowned them king. So they weren't kings, but they were kingmakers. So you had this group of very powerful men who gathered around the kings, and, and so by this time the... the, uh, uh, the um, Medes and the Persians had been overthrown by the, by the Greeks. So you, you probably saw the movie 300, uh, the Persian Wars. The Greeks beat the Persians. Uh, spoiler. Uh, and then from there, one of Alexander's uh, generals founded the Seleucid Empire and then the Parthians took over in 139 BC. So by the time that the Magi came at Jesus' time, they were actually Parthian kingmakers. So they'd gone through three different uh, dynasties or three different kingdoms and um, and so they were... Uh, Eastern kingmaking astrologers, pagan worshipping, um, uh, agents of, of a different kingdom. Now, um, Magi were fairly well known throughout the Eastern world as well. We we uh, are introduced to two of them in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 8 uh, is um, starting at verse 9. We won't read the whole thing, but if you're writing notes, Acts 8, 9 to 13, we, we're introduced to a guy named Simon the Magist, or Simon the Sorcerer. It's sometimes... Uh, Uh, interpreted to be or sometimes um, translated to be and then in Acts 13 there's another one uh, Elemas who was also a sorcerer who tried to turn the proconsul the the Roman proconsul against what Paul and Barnabas were preaching so these were two magi Uh, now in Simon the sorcerer's case he would go around doing all sorts of tricks and magic tricks and and, uh, and performing miracles performing signs and wonders and and people considered him to be essentially one of the gods and so um, this was a fairly, fairly well-known concept throughout the, the Near East uh, in, the, in the time of Jesus. So back to Matthew. So now we understand a little bit about what the Magi were. So we have this group of people, not three of them. There was probably several, maybe many. And they probably had uh, an entourage of up to 100 people with them, with all their servants and the people that, that brought all the, all the uh, equipment and their security. And Because and this, was, this, was, this was quite a, um, an important political thing that was happening as well as a theological thing. So they came, travelled for weeks, at least weeks, if not months, from the east following a star. Now, recognise, remember that they were astrologers. And so... And this is where the disclaimer comes in. Um, So as astrologers, what they saw was they saw a sign in the heavens. They interpreted that sign and then they followed that sign looking for what it meant. Some have suggested that they saw Halley's Comet, which appeared in 11 BC. Uh, It's much more likely, though, that they saw something that occurred three times in 7 BC. So just another quick... Uh, little side note for you, Jesus wasn't born in the years era. He was likely born somewhere around 7 BC. Um, and, and they know that because Herod, who tried to kill all the babies and then Jesus went off to Egypt and you know ran, uh, uh, Mary and Joseph took off for a time until Herod died, he died in 4 BC. So Jesus was born sometime in the two to three years leading up to 4 BC when Herod died. So Jesus was born seven years before Christ. How good's that, eh? Um, but anyway, that, that's just a, you know, a misapplication of, of, of dates by a monk several hundred years later. Um, so anyway, in 7 BC, what happened on three separate occasions, on the 29th of May, on the 3rd of October, and on the 8th of December, was that there was actually a coming together, a conjoining of Jupiter and Saturn uh, in a part of the sky known as Pisces in the astrological chart. Now, Jupiter, according to astronomers and astrologers of the time, was deemed to be the royal planet. And Saturn, according to astronomers and astrologers at the time, was representative of Israel. And so the royal planet and Israel, the, the, the planet that represents Israel, can together in the part of the sky that's known as Pisces. So, in, uh, uh, once again, both astronomically and astrologically at the time, um, the, the section of the sky known as Pisces was deemed to be the section of the sky where the sun ends its old journey and begins its new journey. So here you have a group of men who have spent their whole lives studying the stars, who see this sign come up in the, in the, in the sky where what they know as the kingly planet or the royal planet and the planet that represents Israel get together in the part of the sky where the sun's about to begin its new journey. And so they follow this. What's this? Who who, who is the one that is going to be born? Um, They recognised that this represented that there was a king of the Jews. There was a king that would be born in this part of the world. Now, in all likelihood, they started travelling on the 29th of May when they first saw that sign. And in all likelihood, when they're in Bethlehem, and it says in the narrative that they saw the star once again, that that would have been the 3rd of October or the 8th of December where it reappeared. Um, And so if this is the case, so we've got this situation where a group of astrologers, a group of what we would say pagans who don't know the truth, who are, you know, following the wrong gods, all that sort of stuff, that, you know, a group of them, the outsiders, they come all the way to Jerusalem And they say to Herod, where is the one that's king of the Jews? Now, as Pastor Ben told us two weeks ago, King Herod wasn't even fully Jewish. He was part Edomite. And because he didn't have the right lineage to be called the king of the Jews, he was declared king of the Jews by Rome in 40 BC by Antony followed by Octavian when Octavian um, deposed Antony. And so he was deemed to be king of the Jews by Rome and he then took over Israel by force and, and he, he um, uh, basically was a dictator. So he was a dictator. He was in this place where he called himself, he referred to himself as king of the Jews. Interestingly, there's only two parts of Matthew that refer to that term king of the Jews. One is then when they're talking about Herod and the Magi come and say, who's the king of the Jews? And then when Jesus is crucified. So Matthew makes this point about king of the Jews at his birth and at his death. And so the Magi come, so them, the outsiders, come to Israel, you know, us. Like let's, let's put it in the context of us as Christians. So the Jews are like, they're the believers of the time. They're the ones who, uh, they've got the book. They've got the, uh, they're looking for the Messiah. You know, they, they've got all the promises of Abraham. They've got all that stuff. This is before the New Testament was written. And so th- they were like, I guess, what we would be today in some ways, if, if, we, if we were to take this as an, an, uh, an analogy, and so the outsiders, the ones who have these false belief systems, worship false gods, they come recognising that the king of the Jews has been born and Herod and all of Jerusalem are quite disturbed, the story tells us. And so Herod goes to the, uh, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When, Ke- when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law... He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod goes to the priests and asks, well, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they know straight away, oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And, and they can quote the scripture. They, they have the knowledge they have the understanding. They recognise, they've, they've spent their life researching the scriptures to look for the Messiah. So what would you do if you were a religious leader and, and you'd, all your life you'd known that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem? This bunch of astrologers comes in with you know, this massive big political thing who are known as the kingmakers of the Near East coming and saying, where is the king of the Jews? Do you reckon you'd go and check it out? you reckon that would pique your interest enough to say, I've got to get to Bethlehem and see what's going on? But you know what? The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people, having that knowledge, knowing that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem and having this massive entourage of kingmakers coming from another nation asking where they can find this king, they did nothing. The only ones that went to Bethlehem to seek Jesus were the Magi. Were the astrologers, were the, the, the pagans, you know, them, the ones that are outside. And then even more incredibly, at the end of the story, God then appears to them, you know, the outsiders, those astrologers, in a dream. And he directs their steps and he says, No, no, don't go back to Jerusalem, don't go back to Herod, don't go back to the, the Jews, because they have nefarious motives. They want to kill the Messiah. So, in, in a sense, God sided with the outsiders and directed their steps away from Jerusalem. All of the promises of the Old Testament are about Jerusalem, about Zion. If you actually start looking at they were fulfilled in Jesus, not in the city. And, and Jesus' life, he became the fulfillment of the promise that is about Zion. And this is why, um, I know we've talked before, Pastor Ben and others have talked about, You know, that some people get, get all caught up about the, the city of Jerusalem. Now, I reckon the city of Jerusalem is awesome. I'd love to go there one day. But what God's talking about is not about the city. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfilment. And and he, he doesn't have to rely on a certain um, city or a certain place to fulfil the promises of God because the, the promises of God are in him. Now, remember, too, that when Matthew's writing this gospel, so he's writing it many years later, probably... I think, 50-odd years later, give or take. Um, he's writing at a time in history when a lot of Gentiles are coming into the church. A lot of Jews are still rejecting Jesus. Um, Peter's already had his vision, you know, where the, the God let down the, the, the blanket from heaven and, and said to him, eat all foods. And basically, God was saying to Peter, now go to the Gentiles. So God had clearly said by this time, go to the Gentiles. Everybody knew that the gospel was for all people. But many years earlier, when the events were taking place, no one knew that. Everybody thought that this was just about the Jews. The Jews were God's people, not the other nations, not the other ethnic groups, not the other cultures, not the other religions. It was us. And, and sometimes we can have the same mindset as Christians. It's us and them. And, and we think that God's promises are all for us because we're part of the church and, and them out there, will, we almost gleefully say, well, God's going to send them to hell because they're sinners. But you know, one of, the, one of the key parts of Matthew that are found between the genealogy and this story about the Magi is when, uh, when, when the angel appears to Joseph and says to Joseph that he will be called, he being Jesus, will be called, we, we've interpreted uh, Emmanuel, we've translated to, but he'll be called Messiah because he will save the people from their sin. You see, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're in or out, whether you believe or don't believe, we're all sinners. All have sinned and all need a Messiah. And sometimes we can think in terms of, well, it's not us that needs to be saved, it's them. And, and this is the way the Jews felt. And the Jews felt that they somehow had a special relationship with God and it was because they were Jewish. But Jesus was just coming to, to lay a whole lot of those misconceptions to rest. And, and, you know, that thing in, in uh, Matthew chapter 1, it, it, it was a Hebrew play on words. He would be called Mashiach because he will, he, he will um, massage the people. He will save the people from their sins. See, the people were looking for a saviour from the oppressor. They were looking for a saviour from Rome, a saviour from the people that, that, that are stopping us from being all that we should be. But Jesus said all were oppressed, the Jews and the Gentiles. Jesus came to be king for all the Jews and the Gentiles, no matter what the cultural background, no matter what the, the, the um, ethnic group, he is king for all. And, and this whole concept of, of this group of Magi, the key makers coming from a faraway land with their faraway practices, with all of the things that were offensive to any good God-loving Jew at the time, kneeling down before Jesus while the Jews are sitting there doing nothing, It is incredibly offensive. It's just as offensive as Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, where, you know, the Samaritan, the one who, once again, is one of them, not one of us, is the hero of the story, while the priest and the scribe and the others are the villains. This is the same picture, but this is not a parable. This is actually happening. This is why Paul said in Galatians 3 and verse 26, so in Christ Jesus you're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. They're not heirs because they're Jews. They're heirs according to the promise. Jesus is Lord for Jew and Gentile. He's Lord for male and female. He's, He's Lord of everybody. Every other category we love putting people into. He's king for all. And by the time Matthew wrote this, the church largely knew that and the church was largely filled with Gentiles. But at the time it was happening, no one knew it. But it was always the plan. It was always the plan. This is why the Magi were the first ones to come and worship and, and, and recognise Jesus as Lord. All through the Gospels, we see it's so often the Gentiles that recognize him as Lord. This is why Jesus was able to heal the centurion's servant in Matthew chapter 8, the Roman centurion who was part of a system that was actually uh, creating bondage for the people of Israel. But Jesus came and healed. This is why he healed the Canaanite woman's, uh, or delivered, I should say, the Canaanite woman's child when she came and asked him. This is why he could not only release the Gadarene demoniac, the guy that had the demons and was living in the tombs, but then commission him straight away to be an evangelist long before the apostles ever evangelized. This is why Jesus could go and sit with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who once again was a woman who was involved in all sorts of scandalous behavior and say to her, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask him for living water and he would give it to you. So in context of today, he would say, if if you asked me, I would save you. I would be your God. And then go and spend two days in her town, in their homes, by implication, eating their food, defiling himself, if you ask any good Jew, to bring the gospel, and many of them were saved, long before many Jews heard the gospel. You see, it was always about all. It wasn't about the Jews. It was about all. As a matter of fact, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 60. Now, this, as you listen to this prophecy, think of the picture of the Magi. This, this could actually be telling the story of what happens in Matthew 2. The prophecy is so specific. He says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar. Your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you to you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. That's exactly what Matthew talks about in Matthew chapter 2. The very prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled while the Jews do nothing about it. And the ones who are worshipping are them, you know, the outsiders. Let's let's put in our terminology, the non-Christians. Because the truth is, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, Jesus came for you. No matter what your ethnic background, no matter what your culture, no matter what your religious beliefs, no matter what your background is, where you've come from, what you've done, what you haven't done, what's been done to you, Jesus came for you. This is the Jesus that said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He didn't say come if you're from the right tribe or come if you're from the right background or the right gender or the right beliefs or the right sexual preference or the right whatever. He said, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Because you see, he was always king for all. We sometimes get the picture that he was king for the Jews and then king for the Gentiles. But you can go back through the Old Testament. We don't have time for that today, but you can see so many references where even his relationship with the Jews was so that they would be the light to the Gentiles. It was always about the Gentiles coming to worship him too. It was never a situation of exclusion. It was a situation of inclusion. And unless we understand that Jesus is king for all, then we risk going the same direction that the Jews did. And they got so far from the true Jesus that by the time he turned up, they didn't even know it was him. That they'd strayed so far from the heart of God that they saw him as an enemy to their religion. And he was. But the problem was their religion. Jesus is bigger than any of our beliefs. He's bigger than any of our theological boxes. He's bigger than any of our uh, ethnic backgrounds. You know, as Paul declares in Romans 8, he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the reason Paul could write that was because Jesus is King for all. Let's just close our eyes this morning. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you died for every person who's ever breathed a breath on this planet, Lord. Lord, that you died for all, all nations, all ethnicities, all belief systems, all genders, all everything, Lord. There is no person who has ever lived who is outside your plan Lord we thank you that you are the God who who led the magi who led the astrologers the 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 people who really had no right to come and worship you in in our own system Lord the system that we create but you led them to you and they worshipped you and you led them you guided their paths And Lord, no matter what we've been through, no matter what our story is, no matter what our background is, Lord, you can guide us too. Lord, you want to call us. You want to call us to you. You want to call us to that place where we can have an encounter with you as well, because that's what it's all about. And Lord, I pray this day that you would work in each of our hearts, Lord, that we would recognise that you are King for all. Lord, that every one of us has the right to be called your children. Because to all who believe, you're given the right to receive. And Lord, I pray that you'll do work in each of our heart, Lord, that we would know that you're reaching out for us, Lord, that you're calling us. Not to come into a religion, not to come into a, a, a system of anything like that, but just to come into a relationship with you. Lord, that you want to restore to us the purpose for which we were created, and that's relationship with the God of the universe. And Lord, even those of us who maybe consider ourselves on the inside, Lord, those that have been part of a church for many, many years, Lord, I pray that you would call our hearts back to you as well. Lord, because so often our hearts can still be far from you. And so this day, Lord, I pray that every one of us would have an encounter of the living, risen Jesus and that we would know in the depths of our heart, Lord, that you are our King. I just want to take a moment as we finish. For anybody this morning who's here, that maybe you've never made that decision to have Jesus in your life. Maybe you've never made the decision that you want to follow Jesus. This is the sort of God that you can follow, I just want to give you an opportunity this morning. Jesus calls all of us. He calls us, again, not to, not to a religion, not even to necessarily come to church. It's not about any of that stuff. It's about having a relationship with Him. And He wants to come into your heart. And He wants to give you purpose and wholeness and hope and a future. And He wants to restore your joy. And He wants to restore what, what has been stolen from you. And so just as all their eyes are closed, I just want to give you, just for a moment, an opportunity to put your hand up. If that's you today, if this is the sort of Jesus that you really want to give your heart to, I just want to give you a moment to be able to do that. Just put your hand up, and, and, and I'll pray for you. I'll just pray for my sister down the back, Lord God. Lord, just put her hand up, Father. She just wants to... She wants to, to know you. She wants to serve you and follow you, Lord. And, Lord, I thank you that you are the king in my sister's life, Lord. You're the king in all of our lives. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill her afresh, Lord. Lord, that you would you would show her what it is for you to be king in her life. Lord, I pray that you would wash away all the stuff, all the impurities that have come across her in, in life, Lord, for whatever reason, through whatever source. And Lord, that she would begin a new walk with you from this day forth in Jesus' name. Amen.